At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Well, more gave it a facelift. Do you know what an ICBM is? It stands for Intercontinental Ballistic Missile. It's a fancy bomb. We used to store them underground in these silos, but we haven't used this one in years. In fact, there's, there's no bomb here at all. It's just a big old empty space. So we repurposed it to hold something much more powerful than a missile. You. Dan, Tracy, morning. Morning, Doc. Morning. Yeah, you'll have to forgive the staring. You're a bit of a celebrity down here. I am? Oh, yeah. You kidding? You're, you're bigger than Madonna to them. They've all given up their lives, their, their jobs, their families to come work on this program because they believe in the cause. They believe in you. You may have even grown to hate me. But all I've ever wanted to do is to help you. And right now, I think you very much need my help. Your gifts have been stolen. I believe I know why. And I believe I know how to get them back. Let us work together again. You and I. Daughter. And Papa.
Greetings, stranger friends, and welcome back to Stranger Danger. I have some news personally about me. Guess what? I did it. I watched them all. Finally, I can say that um, I do know what's going to happen next, even though I'm not going to talk about it here because I don't want to spoil anything for anybody who may not have watched past this episode. Maybe you're watching it and then listening to this. I'm not sure. And for those people, for those few people out there that that may exist, I am not going to spoil anything. All I can say is I am excited for how uh, it's all, how it ended and how uh, we have two more episodes the fact that they split it up this way actually makes it more exciting because it really left you with a cliffhanger that you don't have to wait that long to resolve. And, uh, oh boy, oh boy, it's like we are now a matter of, what, uh, 12 days away? So less than two weeks from the return. I feel like this is when we did the rewatch. Like, oh, it's it's coming back soon, it's coming back soon. Yeah. It's coming back really soon now. I know we only get two episodes, but think of it as if the last episode is two and a half hours and these used to be four, 40 minutes, 45 minutes, 50 minutes. Think of that as almost three episodes right there. So uh, we're getting so much Stranger Things still coming our way. But until we get there, we're still here right now. So I'm not going to waste any more time with you. Let's get ready. And talk about Chapter 5, The Nina Project. Our episode opens on an empty road in the middle of nowhere, where suddenly we see the pizza van. So the episode picks up with uh, Will, Mike, Jonathan, and Argyle, and the uh, the suit, the the government guy who was helping them who got shot, picks up with them where we last saw them. They were making a break, escaping from the bad government folk over at the buyer's house, 
And now we see them just driving. Uh, I don't know where they are. It seems like they're in the middle of nowhere. They're trying to keep this guy alive. But you could see he's like no hospitals. Like he knows that if he gets to a hospital, they can track him. They can find them that way. Uh, it's funny that Argyle doesn't thinks they, they want to go to a church. Uh, so he he's like, no, we have to. You have to warn Owens. You have to you have to save the girl. And he hands them the pen. And you notice what he says. He doesn't say here. Write this down. He says, here's the number. That's a little clue that we're going to find out uh, actually makes sense na- uh, later on in the episode. Here's the number. And he hands them the pen. They don't realize it. So they're trying to get him to sign to write down the number. It's funny. They're holding up a High Times magazine, which is a magazine all about getting high. And before he has a chance to write anything or answer them or answer who Nina is, because he mentions Nina, he dies. And Argyle, as you can see, freaks out. Uh, Oh, my God. You know, is he dead? Oh, my God. And then they notice uh, there is some headlights following them. And they're like, Argyle, you got to get off the road. Get off the road. And he pulls quickly and turns down a dirt road. Uh, seemingly far enough away that, and I guess it was, it's probably darker than it looks to us. Uh, so they were able to get away from whatever was following them. And that's that's assuming this car was actually following them. It could have been a thing where they see this car and they think, oh, you know, they could be following us. We better get off the road. And that car that was behind them, maybe they, it wasn't actually following them. So we cut over to the buyer's house, which still feels weird saying that. And there are some soldiers making a mess of things, going through everything, looking for anything. And we see that guy Sullivan, also known as a general jerkface. That's what I like to call him. He notices something. And, oh, oh God, he sees the letter from L, the one that she wrote to Mike and said, I'm off to be a superhero from L. You know, in the last episode, they showed Mike throwing it in the garbage. And they made a point of that. And now we see there's a reason they made a point of that. And I love when things are shown to us for a reason. Like sometimes you'll notice in TV shows, why are they showing that? You'll see it in recaps. I I actually don't like it on some TV shows where they say previously on and they bring up all these specific moments that you're like, okay, these are all going to be addressed in this episode. But I do like when you'll see something gets focused on a specific angle, a specific prop, and you'll think, huh, they wanted us to see that and notice that. It's not as like, it's not as like handing, here's what's going to happen later. But it, it, if you're paying attention, you could be like, oh, that, you know, th- I wonder why they did that. And I really didn't think much of it after that. I honestly thought, gee, I guess he made a basket because he threw it in the garbage. But now we see that that does have a payoff because he knows now that L's not there that L is probably going off with Owens. So he takes the letter to that other guy, the guy who answered the door thinking he was getting a delicious pizza. Uh, he was shot, but it, miraculously, he is still alive, which in actuality is both good and bad news for him. And Sullivan says to him, listen, I know she was just here, and if you want to live, you're going to tell me where she is. Didn't you expect the opening credits to happen right then and there? I thought we were going to hear the, but instead, we actually go and find out where she is. We jump over to Elle, who is asleep in the back of a car, but she's woken up when there's a bumpy road, and Owens is in the front seat. Someone else is driving, and he apologizes. You know, he says, I apologize for the bumpy road. 
I would have it paved, but it would kind of ruin the whole top secret location thing. The car drives along in the desert, and we see the words 12 hours ago on the screen. So whatever's happening with Mike and Will and, and Jonathan and Argyle, or whatever's happening in, in um, Hawkins, this happened 12 hours before that. So it, I, what I guess that allows us to do is give Eleven all this time to do something to catch up to, you know, because she's going to be there, you think, for a while taking care of things. Uh, and that this 12 hours allows for her to do a lot of what we see uh, in the next couple episodes. The car pulls up to a small concrete structure that's in the middle of nowhere. It's just some bricks, some concrete, and a door. Owens and Eleven get out of the car, and before they even have a chance to turn around, go inside, the, the car just takes off, drives off, leaves them there. Owens punches a code into the uh, door, and that gets them inside. Once they get inside, they go into this metal elevator, and uh, Owens is like, what, you didn't think we'd do all this out of a shed, did you? But he presses something, and boom, they go down, 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 down. Uh, that's when you hear the the audio from the beginning of this episode. Owens explains what the place is, how it used to be, um, how it used to be used for missiles, but it's been repurposed to house something more powerful, her. And there are workers there that are all kind of looking at them. And Owens makes a point to say, uh, you know, you're a bit of a celebrity here. Like all these people, they've given up their jobs, their lives because they believe in the cause. They believe in you. And that sounds all great. It really does. Everything sounds really nice until they enter the room. Well, first, first we see this giant tank. And Owen says, we call her Nina. And okay, now we know why it's called the Nina Project. At first, I thought maybe it was going to be uh, like another subject, a previous number, a previous child who was uh, part of the whole Hawkins laboratory thing, but nope, nope, it's, uh, it's just a tank. But that's not the problem here. The big thing is uh, Eleven asks, what is it? And Owens doesn't answer her. Instead, she hears the response, if we told you, it would ruin the surprise. You hear the voice, you see the feet coming down the steps, and God damn it, it's Dr. Brenner. It's not a flashback, not a vision. He is there in the room and he is alive. Okay, sure, he has a little bit of a scar on his face, but other than that, he seems to be doing just fine. Well, shit. He tells Eleven, I know you must be frightened to see me, maybe even have grown to hate me, but all I've ever wanted to do is help you, and right now I think you very much need my help. Your gifts have been stolen. I believe I know why, and I believe I know how to get them back. Let us work together again, you and I, daughter and papa. Oh, it just sent chills down my spine watching that, even reading it now. Ooh. Eleven has flashbacks of what uh, he put her through, what actually he put all her friends through, too. And she's like, screw that. She bolts out of the room, makes her way to the elevator, runs there. Her face is filled with fear. She's running down this hall trying to get away. She almost gets there, too, but she's stopped by three guards who grab her. 
a doctor comes up and she injects some sort of anesthetic into Eleven's neck. The more you move, the more this is gonna hurt. Sorry, Eleven. This is not how I wanted things to begin. But everything's going to be all right. You're home now. You're home. So, Eleven passes out. Brenner's holding her. And as we fade back, we see... Owen's also standing there, plus the doctor who injected her and the three guards. And Owen's, I don't know, the, 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 thing, the way that he pulled this off and he did this to her, not cool, dude. I mean, I have been on Owen's side for uh, since really the beginning. I trusted him for the most part. Uh, at the beginning now, some of that stuff he pulled with Nancy and Jonathan and talking about the lengths they'd go to cover things up was a little suspect but he was he seemed to always be um true to his word to will to joyce to hopper and to l but this this seemed to cross some sort of trust line and maybe he's thinking if i tell 11 about him uh there's no chance she will come and he is my only hope to be able to he got the powers out of them before He's my only hope to get the powers out of them again, uh, but still, still not cool. And I can only imagine what was going through Eleven's head, like the fear that all this time, you know, she was away, she was free, and it's all gone, and she feels like she might be right back pretty much where she started. It's not really the case, but you have to believe that, you know, she was, this had to be going through her mind. And then we finally cut to the opening credits. After the credits, we find ourselves uh, with Hopper back in prison in Soviet Russia. Hopper's getting the krapka beaten out of him, and he is told he didn't listen, so now there is going to be much pain. He's dragged back to his cell, and anytime I see, like, bare feet being dragged, I just get, ooh, like it chills, like, ooh, and the, the bottom of his feet are all bloody and gross. Um... And he's being, as I say, he's being dragged back to his cell through this open prison guard. We focus for a few seconds on these big steel doors. Again, they don't focus on things for no reason. We talked about the, the letter in the, in the trash. Now we're focusing on these big steel doors. And then we see this mace on the ground, a spiked ball on a chain. And it's laying on the snowy ground, but it's also covered in blood. So you know something goes on in that prison yard. Hopper's thrown back into his cell. Only this time, there's a new prisoner there with him. It could be worse, American. At least you have company. Your eyes don't deceive you. I'm a prisoner now, like you. You're the smuggler. You betrayed me. Betrayed us. You said we could trust him! Right. You swore to me! Because I believe we could! 
You think this is what I planned? I have lost everything, everything! We both knew the risks. Both of us! We gambled today. And we lost. We lost. You heard an, a third voice in there, a guy just speaking Russian. That was another prisoner who just wanted Hopper to kill Enzo. He's like, get the pig. Uh, and he, you know, he's now he's going to get his. Uh, and then he was angry and upset when that didn't come to play. Uh, Hopper was, you could just like the acting of David Harbour. The, you said we could trust him. Like the look of desperation in his eyes. Uh, and now, you know, realizing that the, the one plan that they had, their one chance has slipped through their fingers. Uh, but of course, his next thought is, well, wait, what about Joyce? I'm a traveling we see what's up with Joyce in the very next scene as we cut over to Alaska and Yuri is getting his plane working and uh, getting it started. He goes on board to talk with Joyce and Murray before they take off. Oh, and Joyce and Murray are both tied up. Yuri talks about how he can sell peanut butter for $20 per jar over there. He'd get enough money to... Uh, be able to buy a home and a pony for his daughter. He's one of those guys who probably thinks, you know what? I don't know these people. I don't have any connection to them. I'll do whatever I can to improve my my, my situation, my family situation. And who cares who gets hurt along the way? A couple of Americans? I mean, who who cares? I, I can I can provide for my family. I mean, who cares who gets hurt along the way? And with that, they take to the not-so-friendly skies. Next stop, Russia. As Yuri flies his prisoners across the Atlantic Ocean, we follow the plane for a moment in the sky, and then we find ourselves coming down over Indiana. Hawkins, Indiana, to be exact. We're at a lake where we see two guys kind of just chilling out, fishing, listening to some tunes, enjoying a few cold ones. And they notice a door closing at a house nearby the water. One of them says, when did Rick get out of jail? The other guy looks at the house and is like... Justice system is a goddamn joke. So that is Reefer Rick's house. Uh, and we both know Reefer Rick is not inside. However, now these guys think that Rick is out of jail. You can just imagine how news travels fast in a small town. Now inside the house, we see Eddie making SpaghettiOs. What do kids say when they're hungry at noon? Uh-oh, SpaghettiOs. If there is one food that uh, I can think of as a kid that reminds me of lunch, uh, 
being a kid and going to my grandparents' house, it has to be SpaghettiOs. Sometimes with the little meatballs, well, you know they weren't great meatballs, but they were also delicious. Sometimes you get them with little hot dogs inside. It just feels like that was such a staple of maybe you're home for a day off or you have a sick day and you need lunch and you have a giant can of basically tomato soup with little pasta rings in it. Um, I can taste it right now and it just, oh, 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 SpaghettiOs. It just makes me think of, uh, of, of being a kid. And right now that's all Eddie has in his uncle's house to, to cook up. So he makes some. Uh, and while he's eating, he picks up his walkie-talkie, tries to reach Dustin, who is asleep back at the Wheeler house along with everyone else. Uh, Nancy ends up answering the call and he's like, Wheeler, hey, uh, can you maybe get me some food? You don't want me venturing out uh, on my own and maybe a six pack. He's like, I know drinking, you know, is probably stupid right now, but it really would help. Uh, But she's quickly to say she has to call him back because she notices an empty couch. She quickly wakes up Dustin, who's like, what, 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 what? He was on Max Watch. Uh, But it turns out he dozed off for an hour. They run upstairs quickly together and oh, Oh, Max appears to be fine. She's at the kitchen table with Holly. She's coloring, and Holly is busy playing with her light bright. There's a funny little exchange, actually, with Dustin and Mr. Wheeler, and you can tell that Mr. Wheeler gets annoyed by the kids, and probably mostly Dustin, but it's also it's also kind of like uh, playful in the way, like, oh, you kids annoy me. At least that's how Dustin sees it. And, I, you know, you can see Mr. Wheeler doesn't actually get angry at him. He just complains to them. And it's almost like a fun banter between them. And Dustin's like, oh, his mother's like, you're always welcome. And he's like, thank you. And he starts taking all these, um, all these pancakes right in front of Mr. Wheeler. But meanwhile, Nancy goes over to Max, who looks like she's drawing things that she saw when she was in Vecna's trance. Hey, you okay? I just couldn't sleep. People kept blasting music in my ears for some reason. But Holly let me borrow some of her crayons. We've been having a fun morning, right, Holly? Mm-hmm. Is this what you saw last night? I mean, it, it's supposed to be. I thought it'd be easier to draw it out than to explain it, but not so much as that. It was like they were on display or something. And then there was this red fog everywhere. It was like a dream, a nightmare. Do you think Vecna's just trying to scare you? With Billy, yeah. But when I made it here, I don't know, something was different. He seemed surprised, almost. Like he didn't want me there. Maybe you infiltrated his mind. He invaded your mind, right? Is it that big of a leap to suggest you somehow wound up in his? Like Freddy Krueger's boiler room. Freddy Krueger? He's a super burned up dude with razors for fingers and he kills you in your dreams. Dustin, seriously? Sorry. It's a movie. It's not real. Just think about it. What if you somehow unlocked a back door to Vecna's world? Like maybe the answer we're looking for is somewhere in this incredibly vague drawing. God, we need Will. Yeah, no shit. But I tried them again this morning, and it's the same busy signal. Is this a window? Yeah. Stained glass with roses. Yeah. See, I'm not so terrible after all. Yeah, well, it helps that I've seen it before. 
Nancy starts taking the various drawings. They're all kind of separate little pieces of things. And she starts folding them and overlapping them and kind of making some sort of, of one design, one figure, one image from them. She takes a marker and she starts tracing on the outside of the, the, the image that she's created. You see her adding walls, adding windows. It's pieces of a house, not just any house. She lays the door right at the front of the image, and we see a flashback of the Creel family entering this house. It's Victor Creel's house. So now we know. We knew already that Vecna was connected to the Creels in some way because of what Vecna did to the Creel family. But now we know that there's something very specific about the Creel house uh, that is related to all of this. So Nancy was like, come on, let's go. It's like, Dustin's like, where are you going? She goes, I'm going to go wake everyone else up. I love that they, they're getting everyone involved. And of course, Dustin needs to grab a few more pancakes for the road before he follows Nancy, much to the dismay of Mr. Wheeler. We then cut over to Eleven. She wakes up and, wait, is she in the Hawkins laboratory? She looks down to see that she's in a hospital gown. And when she puts her hand up to her head, she's horrified to feel, to discover that her hair is all gone. She leaves the room that she's in and makes her way down this long hallway and into the rainbow room. She sees other children playing with various different things, and then she's greeted by what appears to be an orderly. Well, well. Look who finally decided to join us. Someone's a sleepyhead this morning. Where am I? I guess you're still not quite awake, huh? Am I in Hawkins? Well, well. Look who finally decided to join us. Someone's a sleepyhead this morning. Don't go too far, sleepyhead. Lessons begin promptly at 10. It's at this point you realize she's in some sort of dream. I mean, we see the lights flicker. Then we see the orderly repeat himself. Like, he wasn't repeating himself, but what was being said was repeating. It was happening again, like in a little bit of a loop. Eleven uh, has this look of great fear in her face, and she heads out through the door, runs back down the hallway, uh, and she tries to figure out where to go. She runs down a different hallway, goes through a different set of door, and finds herself right back in the rainbow room right back with that creepy orderly dude, and he's right back again saying the same thing again uh, over and over. Then we see some sort of brain scan reading printing out on a piece of paper. And a woman says, Eleven's heart rate is now 120 BPM. We're, we're not, uh, we're in the, the Nina area now, and Owens says he's worried that she's rejecting it, worried she'll drown. Brenna says he has faith in her. Give it time. She is going to swim. Uh, we don't see where Eleven is exactly, but you have to pretty much guess now that she's in that tank. And whatever 
uh, she's seeing whatever she is envisioning is some sort of dream, some sort of memory, something. But we're not quite sure exactly what, uh, what she's experiencing right now. So we cut over to, I'm going to say, the California desert. We're at a junkyard uh, that appears to not have anybody working there, which is a good thing because they need to bury a, a body. Argyle is freaking out, uh, which, you know, doesn't, really isn't um, that odd. Like, it seems, it's actually pretty natural. This kid that just is a pizza delivery dude is in high school. He's freaking out because he sees three guys he knows, or two guys he knows, one guy he just met, uh, burying a dead body of a guy who just saved them from gunfire. So you can imagine what's going through his head. He starts saying they need to go to the cops, and uh, the other guys are like, no, and he's coming, he's becoming unhinged. He's talking about like how the government's trying to get your girlfriend, maybe they get your girlfriend, maybe they're coming for us, man. And Jonathan's like, you need to relax. You need to just calm down, calm down. You need to do your thing, man. You need to open your mind, do your thing, which uh, is, you know, uh, code for smoking a little ganja, uh, some grass, some wacky tobacco. Basically, he needs him to uh, get high so he can relax. Will's like, are you sure getting high right now is the best idea? And Jonathan's like, can you think of another way to calm him down? Will then looks over at Mike, who you can see is shaken up a bit by everything that Argyle was saying. After they were done doing the burying, <laughs> I say that like it's some normal thing. After they're done burying the body, uh, they had a few moments to kind of relax a little. And Will and Mike had a quiet moment to talk about a few things. You can't let him get to you. I mean, he's stoned out of his mind. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. That doesn't mean he's wrong. I mean, if that guy would have lived one more second, one more second, we would know where she is. Why didn't he just say the number? I, I should have explained myself, because then maybe Eleven would have taken me with her and things would be different, but... No. I, I didn't... I didn't know what to say. Sometimes... I think it's just scary to open up like that. To say how you really feel. Especially to people you care about the most. Because... What if... What if they don't like the truth? You could see there that Will was trying to comfort Mike, but he's also, I think he's also kind of talking about himself. You know, like he maybe wanted to open up and say something uh, to Mike about uh, his feelings. But at that exact moment, at that touching, dramatic moment, um, Argyle interrupts them. He's like, hey, does anybody know the dead dude's name? Because he wants to make a headstone for the grave uh, with the pizza box that they have. Uh, and he's like, Jonathan's like, you really think that's a good idea? Like he was going to put all their names on it too. He's going to put all our names. We're trying to hide the body. Uh, Argyle's just kind of like, he half listens. He's like, oh yeah, maybe I'll just put here lies, you know, dead unknown agent man. Um, but his pen doesn't work. And Mike is like, that's the pen. That's the pen that, he gave me. Why would he give me a dead pen? Remember, he didn't say here, write down the number. He said here, here's the number. Mike walks over, takes the pen, opens it up as Argyle's like, hey man, my pen. And he finds a phone number handwritten on a piece of paper. They've had it this entire time. 
We cut back over to Russia and, uh, oh, is that, is that Hopper? Oh, no, it's a guard who seems to be mopping up some blood out in the prison yard. Uh, he's not Hopper, so I guess I'll, I guess I'll call him Mopper. So this guy, Mopper, you got to give this guy a hand. Well, actually, you don't have to give him a hand because he has an extra one that he has to go pick up in the middle of the prison yard. They're obviously cleaning up uh, what is left of some of the prisoners who had to deal with something. Whatever it is behind those doors, I wonder what. Up in uh, the cell, we hear Enzo. I keep calling him that, even though isn't it Antonov? But he's getting—he's trying to get the attention of another guard, a higher up, who was giving uh, orders to Mr. Mopper. And he tells the guy, he brings the guy up, he's like, come here, come here. He tells him this American, he comes from money and he can, he can make this guy rich. Hopper doesn't even look up, doesn't go along with the story at all. The guy just walks off, believing that they were just wasting his time. Enzo hasn't given up hope, but he's afraid that Hopper, that Hopper may have. What about your woman, hmm? She's captured, yes, but still alive. We can still save her. Save her. That is amusing to you. You don't get it, dude. You don't get it. Closer I get with Joyce, the more danger she's in. You're not thinking straight, American. No, I think I am. You know, for the first time in my life, I think I'm thinking straight. I used to think I was cursed. Ever since I was 18. There's some letter of induction in the mail. Uncle Sam wants me to go fight some war in the jungle. Charlie's moving south like a plague because of commie bastards like you. And, you know, I'm happy enough to go. Proof to my old man I'm not the piece of shit he thinks I am. I get over there, I must test well, and they put me in the chemical core. And there I am. I'm just a kid, you know, I'm 18 years old, I'm 8,000 miles away, and I'm mixing up these 55 gallon drums of Agent Orange. Just these kitchen gloves, you know. We used to clean out these buffalo turbines after a run. We'd just be inhaling this stuff. No mass, nothing. It's not chemical warfare. It's just herbicide, kill plants. Harmless. That's what they told us. And then I got back to real life, and these guys I worked with, the ones that made it back, they started trying to get back to normal, you know, having families, and then things started going wrong. Kids born, stillborn, dead in the womb. Crooked spines, eyes popped out. The horror followed us, clung to us. My wife, Diane, she wanted a baby. I did too. We had a baby, and she was, um, she was born healthy. She was perfect, you know, Sarah. And then she died. It wasn't an easy death. She suffered. I knew the risk, but I, um, I hid them. And then Diane left me. She didn't blame me, but not with words. After that, I was just... I just hid myself in drugs and alcohol. And then people started coming into my life. 
This girl Elle and Joyce just happened, and I told myself they needed me. But that wasn't true. That's a lie. They didn't need me. I needed them. I needed them. You were right what you said last night. I knew the risks breaking out of here, but I did it anyway. The minute I sent for Joyce, the minute I sent for her, I sentenced her to death. Just like I did with Sarah. Everyone I love, I hurt. See, I was wrong this whole time. I wasn't cursed. I am the curse. I know that was a pretty long clip, but I, I don't care. I, I was such a great moment for Hopper, for David Harbour, uh, that I, I, I had to put it in. I was almost going to have it as the opening of this episode. Uh, such a great moment. I feel like this is some of Hopper's past that I know we were promised uh, in, re in like interviews with David Harbour. Uh, he talked about, you will learn some of Hopper's past. Uh, and of course, um, we, I read uh, Darkness on the Edge of Town that went into more of his time in New York City. But this was focused more on his family life, but before that, a little bit of his time in Vietnam. Uh, we knew there was a box labeled Vietnam in his cabin uh, that had something in there, but he. this is the first time we really heard him talking about it, how he was drafted, how he was sent off to fight some war he didn't care about, how he was, you know, he was sent to deal with chemicals, Agent Orange, and he was breathing all that shit in uh, without any mask, no protection, nothing. They told him it was safe, it was harmless. They lied to him. And how, you know, when he came back, some of the other guys, they had kids that had birth defects, deformities, but he hid uh, what, it, what he'd been through with his wife. And, you know, he talks about how his daughter died, how she died a terrible death, her illness, and how uh, we, we never realized how much Hopper blamed himself for this. He, he probably ties his time working with all these chemicals to that directly. And he says his wife... Um, left him not long after. She didn't, she didn't directly blame him, but uh, just just an awful moment. And you knew when he says, no, nah, I'm, I'm not cursed. Uh, I am the curse. But hearing him talk about Eleven and Joyce was also just so heartwarming that they, you know, he, he, he thought that he, he needed to protect them and he, he, they needed him, but it really was the other way around. Like they brought... I remember the first time we saw him, he was just kind of like hanging out in his trailer, uh, probably the same trailer that, that Max and uh, Eddie live in, Trailer Park. He had like his girlfriend that was around a little bit. He just had pills and, and well, I guess the pills might have been planned. No, he, but he just drank and smoked and didn't take care of himself and didn't really care all that much about himself, even though he was always, uh, you know, a good cop. And... The the metamorphosis, the the change that this character has had personally with relationships with other people has been great and great for him. But now it's like, you know, um, 
now now things feel hopeless. And Enzo says, you know, um, he's heard the rumors of a monster because then you hear the banging of something behind those steel doors after he has his talk. And uh, Enzo, I keep calling him Enzo, he says, I'm not sure if you're cursed or not, but I know you're right about one thing. We are going to die in here. Man, my Russian accent is perfect. We jump back over to Hawkins, back to that trailer park I just mentioned a few minutes ago, and we see a car pulling up outside of the Munson trailer. There's a knock on the door, and, oh, phew, I was nervous, but it's the woman who's working with Owens. She's there with two other suits. That's just what I call these guys. She flashes her badge and says, uh, they need to take a look around. Wayne Munson doesn't seem to uh, mind letting them in, doesn't really put up an argument, isn't isn't um, like belligerent to them. He just lets them come right in. One guy has what I guess kind of sounds like a, a Geiger counter, but also looks like a giant hairdryer. He's pointing it around, listening for some sort of reaction, and gets a pretty pretty big one when he points it up towards the ceiling and to that crack we saw opening earlier. It's like, tick, 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 that's my impression of whatever this thing is. Uncle Wayne's like, uh, yeah, this is some, some sort of leak. He hasn't had a chance to patch it up, but the moment the woman looks at it, she's like, pack your things. We're moving you. We actually stay in Hawkins, and we cut over to Chrissy's funeral. It is uh, it's filled with all kinds of family and friends and classmates, and her mom is talking about how she's saying many different things, but she goes on to say how Chrissy is angry, angry that the monster that did this to her is still out there. But I can't help, when I look at this woman, I can't help but think the, the, the mental abuse that it seems like she put Chrissy through while her dad just sat there and did nothing. That's my guess based on her face all sewed up, his face all sewed up in the, the dream world and the mother always talking about, we've got to, we've got to take your, your, your uniform out so you can fit. Uh, I feel like... This woman is a bit of a two-face, but that being said, uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure she is uh, uh, really sad that her daughter is, you know, really dead. Uh, so as I said, the, the church is filled with all kinds of family, friends, classmates, including those basketball bros. And one of those guys, Patrick, seems to be distracted by, oh gosh, it's the ticking of a clock. Um, you can sing along if you want. He looks and he sees on the side of the church behind a door. There it is. The grandfather clock. The one that kind of is the first sign that uh, things aren't going to go well for you. He looks away quickly and now we focus on Jason. Uh, and then we see him kind of listening to what's going on at the funeral and we cut over after the funeral to, I, I'm going to guess back at the burger place where they all hang out. Uh, and Jason's basically giving a debrief to all his teammates. Photos for the 86-year book. God damn. Sinclair? Goddamn traitor. 
Only reason he'd lead us to a dead end. The Hellfire Club. They're hiding Eddie. Maybe we should bring all this to the cops. The cops who think Chrissy's a drug dealer? Who are letting this, this psycho go around killing people? I'm just saying, what if this cult is doing shit to us? Doing what? They already know we're after them. What if they cursed us or some shit? Patrick thinks he's cursed. <laughs> hey! None of this is funny. Look, I don't believe in that supernatural crap, all right? But this cult is dangerous. We have to be smart about this. I made a list. Everywhere these freaks have been seen. We divide and conquer. Check them out one by one. Smoke them out. You should add Reefer Rick's house to this. What? Reefer Rick? He's Eddie's supplier. He's supposed to be in prison, but someone spotted him back in his house. Now my parents are freaking out and shit. It's probably nothing. I don't know. No, that's good. That's good. No stones unturned. Uh, I told you word gets around fast in a small town. One person sees they think Reefer Rick is home. Next thing you know, the whole neighborhood knows, the whole town knows. And now Jason knows. So they show a photo of the 86 yearbook. Uh, he, he, got a, he got his hands on it a little early. They see Lucas is in the Hellfire Club. And they think he's a, a traitor. But did you notice Patrick was like, maybe, maybe we should go to the cops. He's worried they might be cursed. Some of the kids laugh at him, but... You can see he's apprehensive about this because just a little while ago, he saw this clock inside this church. So he's already thinking, "Uh uh-oh, they may have gotten to me. The Hellfire Club may have cursed me. Uh, But then another, you see another guy bring up Reefer Rick and, uh, you know, Jason's like, no, no, that's good. That's good. Uh, And he adds them to this list they already have of every place these freaks hang out. And, uh, you know, that's that's not good. We then cut over to the Wheeler Wheels of the Wheelermobile, coming to a stop, and all our friends getting out, Max, Nancy, Lucas, Robin, Dustin, and Steve, and facing the Creel House. Oh, yikes. What are they doing there? I mean... What exactly are we supposed to be looking for in this shithole? We're not sure. We just know this house is important to Vecna. Because Max saw it in Vecna's red suit mind world? Basically. Right. Maybe he holds a clue to where Vecna is, why he's back, why he killed the Creels, and how to stop him before he comes back for Max. We don't think he's in here. Do we? Guess we'll find out. So they... It's all boarded up, and they they take the nails out, they knock... Uh, there's a big board, they drop it down so they can actually see the door. And when they do see the door with the rose uh, stained glass on it, Max, uh, you can see the look on her face. And we hear Vecna, but it's really just kind of a memory in Max's head, which uh, makes sense. I mean, you wouldn't have some, uh, wouldn't you have some sort of like PTSD about this just horrific experience? Uh, I, I would. The door's locked, though, and so it's like, Max, what are you doing here? Like, that's what she hears. But the door's locked, and did Steve really say maybe we should knock? I thought that was pretty funny, but Robin's like, "Uh, no, it's okay. And she holds up a brick and says, I found a key. They throw the brick right through the window, smashes through and lands in the the foyer or whatever you'd call this house, which, again, is right from the trailer. I like seeing these little moments where I go, oh, I recognize that. Steve puts his hand into the door and unlocks it from the inside. 
The lights don't work, but they all have flashlights. Well, except Steve. It's kind of a funny moment where he's like, hey, where, why don't I know about this? And Dustin's like, must I tell you? Must you know everything? It's in my bag. So Steve takes a, a flashlight out of the bag, and Dustin leaves his bag on the floor with his walkie-talkie. Just leaves it there. And Max walks over and she's like, you guys see this, right? She sees a grandfather clock. Wait, not a grandfather clock. The grandfather clock. The clock. Robin gets up close to it and she's like, I mean, it's it's just a clock, right? Steve ponders whether Vecna could be a, a, a clockmaker. It's, it's a comment that Dustin could not ignore making fun of. At that point, they break up into teams of two and they go exploring in the house as we see this little light fixture seemingly come up, light up and come to life out of nowhere. They, they break up into teams of Robin and Nancy, uh, Lucas and Max, and Steve and Dustin. Did I just sigh? No, it's, it's not that I just sighed. It's just that Steve and Dustin are always together, which is exactly what happened in the episode. Steve kind of gave a sigh, and Dustin's like, did you sigh? It's like, it's just, just we're always together. We're always teamed up, which is hilarious because they are. We jump over the Atlantic Ocean. Yuri is in his airplane flying along, enjoying some peanut butter, while Murray... And Joyce are sitting there tied up. Murray's yelling after him because he needs to make a tinkle. I I apologize for my coarse language. He's yelling. He's like, he really has to go to the bathroom. And Joyce realizes that he can't hear them. He can't hear them at all. So she, because she's a woman of action, knocks over a bunch of peanut butter. Thank God they still use glass jars. Uh, And her plan is to get some of the glass, cut themselves out of their, their ropes, and then have Murray take out Yuri. Don't knock him out, just, you know, because they need someone to fly, but just subdue him. Murray's hesitant, but Joyce, calling back to his karate talk, is like, sorry, isn't black the highest color? Yes, it's just... Just what? I've never fought in a real-world scenario, okay? I've only sparred with the other students. How old? It doesn't go younger than 13. 13? But... Jeremiah is 16, almost. His birthday is next month, and and Jeremiah is a ferocious fighter, lightning fast, very skilled. And I beat him that one time. Certainly, Yuri is not trained or skilled like Jeremiah. So yes, yes, you're right. I can defeat Yuri, absolutely. Thank you for talking it through. I feel much better now. Such a great moment. First, it reminds me of that old Seinfeld episode where Kramer was in a karate class with children. Uh, but at least with, with Murray, it's teenagers. It's at least not younger than 13. And Jeremiah seems like he's a big kid. He's almost 16. And I love that um, instead of this being like Murray cowering because he's only fought these kids it actually boosts his confidence. He's like, wait a second. Jeremiah is, is, you know, he's, 
He has all this skill, and there's no way Yuri has that. He's, he's ferocious. Um, yes, I can defeat Yuri. He's like, thank you so much for, for giving me the, you know, the confidence and talking this through with me. He's more confident. And now Joyce, who had this whole plan in mind, she's like, um, okay. You can see she's even less confident. So we see the plane flying still. It takes a long time to get to Russia. And we cut back over to the Nina project, but more specifically into Eleven's mind. She's still running and still finding the rainbow room behind every door she tries. She looks like she's lost hope and is on the verge of tears. And then she snapped back into the rainbow room again. And once again, this creepy orderly guy is speaking with her and saying the same thing. Hello, sleepyhead. And uh, she grabs a chair at this point and she gets up very close into the security camera in the corner and she yells, stop this and let me out. But then she notices something in the lens. She notices her reflection. Something, something doesn't seem right. She gets down and she walks over to uh, this giant mirror. And who does she see in the reflection? Herself. But a younger, much smaller version of herself. Smaller than the 11 we saw in the first season of Stranger Things. So we know that whatever this is, it's pretty well before the events of the first Stranger Things. And right as she's starting to kind of figure out what's going on and trying to put the pieces together, out of nowhere, she hears the voice of Dr. Brenner. In 1786, Nicholas Dalerac wrote an opera called Nina. It's a story about a young woman whose lover was killed in a duel. Nina was so traumatized that she buried the memory. It was as if it never happened. Every day she would return to the train station to await her lover's return. A return that would never be. If only Nina could know the truth. This is our real. No, but it once was. The memory. Very good. How? Never mind how. Let me out. I want out! I'm sorry, Levin. You'll have to find your own way out. Leave your train station. Stop waiting. Focus. Listen. Remember. I don't understand! I don't understand! So Brenner explains to her this, this opera uh, named called Nina. And it's about a, a person who had a suppressed memory. Suppressed a terrible memory to the point where it didn't even happen in her life. And the way that he says that, you're thinking, okay, this is very much um, talking about Eleven, who suppressed a memory that she does not quite remember happening in her life. And yet, I'm pretty sure we saw that memory at the beginning of this season. I wish when Brenna, she's like, this is a memory. He's like, yes, how? It's not important how. I'm like, oh, no, I, I'd like to know right now uh, how, how, how this is happening. But he doesn't tell her. He just tells her that, you know, you need to, to focus, listen, remember. But now Eleven knows that she is, whatever she's doing, she's in this dream, this memory, because of what Brenner and Owens are doing. So I think... 
I feel like that should give her at least a little comfort as to what she's experiencing. But it's so real that I'm sure it's still very, very scary. And uh, whatever is happening, this is the memory that she's reliving. And once again, once again, we see that order orderly telling her that, um, you know, oh, he's, he's saying the same thing to her. And then he tells her that training is starting soon and she's going to do great. Brenner, then in the memory, comes in to greet them all. And I'm pretty sure that sound is from Eleven, Are You Listening?, where he says, Good morning, children. Good morning, Papa. And they all line up. And Eleven, you know, she's the small version. She's the small child in the memory. But what we see, and what I think she sees, is the older, current version of her. She gets in line with all the other kids. I think she's like, Okay, I just, I guess I need to see this through. Now, back outside of the memory in the lab area, Brenner mentions to Owens that things are going good and she is swimming now. Owens said good because he just got off the phone with Stinson and they don't have much time. Stinson, of course, is that female agent who we know works with Owens, who we last saw with Eddie's uncle, moving him out of the trailer because of that, you know, whatever that is in his ceiling. Brenner mentions that she'll just have to swim faster then. We then see inside the Nina tank. There are monitors playing footage of things going on in, ha- in Hawkins' lab, things that Eleven lived through in her memories. And inside, we see Eleven. She's floating in, looks like she's in a weighted suit, uh, but, or some kind of suit that's helping her float. She's got a swim cap on that's connected to all kinds of electrodes that are monitoring her. And I remember at first thought, when I first saw this, I thought, wait, are her memories being projected into the monitors? I'm, you know, I think if I said that out loud in front of Dustin, he would have looked at me the way Dustin looked at Steve a couple times in this episode. We, could, we, we learn pretty much later that it's almost the exact opposite of that. So we cut over to uh, a street in the middle of nowhere. We see a phone booth. And off in the distance, we hear an automobile approaching... And we see, once again, this automobile is van. But not just any van, a pizza van. Argyle slows down just in time to not crash to the phone booth. They get out quickly. Mike pops some change into the payphone and calls the number on the slip of paper. 202-968-6161. Is it ringing? No, no, it's just making a bunch of weird noises. Busy? Listen to this. Does that remind you of anything? War games. What? We're not calling a phone. We're calling a computer. Okay, I don't know if Nina's a computer like Joshua or Owen's lab, but unknown here agent man, he gave us access to it for a reason. We just need to find the computer. We find Owens, then we warn him. Then we warn Eleven. I just need a hacker. The only hacker that I know lives in Utah. In Utah? Salt Lake City, to be specific. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. What? Why, oh, my God? Turn around. Look at what you see. Oh, no. Never-ending story. That scared the shit out of me. The nothing, man. That's a proper existential shit right there, dude. You can't be serious. Well, if we take the I-15 North, we'll get there by morning. Oh, you're being serious. I know it sounds insane, but Susie saved the world last year. 
And maybe she can save it again. First of all, I love that they don't quite know that sound yet, but it reminds them of the movie War Games. If you've never seen War Games, Matthew Broderick uses a computer to play an online game, uh, and he plays a game with a computer named Joshua, but what he doesn't realize, he thinks he's playing this war game. He's actually patched himself into like the government system, and he almost accidentally starts a real nuclear war. Nuclear? Nuclear? You know what I mean. A real war. Uh, so because of their knowledge of movies, they know they're not calling a phone. They're calling a computer. They're probably about seven or eight years away from really being more familiar with that sound before logging into AOL. Uh, you younger listeners out there, you probably, probably haven't even heard that sound except in TV or movies uh, with your Wi-Fi and your high-speed internet. You have no idea what it was like for us Gen Xers to go online, have to dial into a specific phone number, clog up your phone uh, just to be online, and then it went really, really, really slow. Uh, I, I love that. But you know what I also love? They actually gave us a phone number. 202-968-6161. Sounds like another real phone number to me. Why don't we give it a call? So there's really not much there when you call. Uh, I, I listen to this. It, it does this for about a minute. Then it repeats itself. And then it hangs up. It's not exactly the same thing that Mike and Will, Jonathan and Argyle here when they call. And I think that's because uh, if it was the exact same sound, some old-fashioned modems may actually try to connect to it. But I still think it's fun that you know they do another Easter egg with a phone number. They take the time to create something just for the fans to interact a little bit more. I love that. But what I love even more is Mike thinking, you know, he gave us this number for a reason. Whether it's uh, a computer like Jacob or if it goes to Owens, it has to be important. And they need a hacker. And the only hacker they know lives in Utah, Salt Lake City, Utah. I love that Jonathan's like, oh, man, you can't be serious. And Will's singing the song. And uh, never any story. Sorry, I had to sing a little bit. Uh, Susie, we saw her really early on in the first episode where she was changing a grade for Dustin. Uh, and since then, we haven't, haven't heard about her. But now she's, she's here, and perhaps she can save the world again. I love that... Um, she is being brought into the fold and she is giving some, some sort of mission uh, that could help the greater good. Uh, I love that, that we're getting Susie involved again. Ah, God, I wish I could sing like that. So we go back to Hawkins, Indiana, and we see Eddie just kind of hanging out in the boathouse, passing the time. It looks like he's throwing coins or something into his empty SpaghettiO can. He's waiting for everyone to come back, for anyone to come back, really. But he's waiting for the other friends to come back with some food and some beer. 
And uh, finally, he hears a car approaching, but he's nervous. He's nervous, and oh no. Oh, shit. He looks outside, and he sees it's those basketball jerks. Looks like they've come straight from the funeral based on their outfits. They look like reservoir dogs. They're all in their suit and ties. They walk right into Rick's open house. Like, okay, guys, um, you know, like a little privacy here, a little like uh, decency. What the hell? They don't even knock. They go in, and they notice the pot that had the SpaghettiOs on the oven. Another person betrayed by SpaghettiOs. Anyway, Jason sees the SpaghettiOs and thinks, oh, this is the place. Eddie over at the uh, boathouse, he's now frantically calling over to Dustin in the walkie-talkie. Please, Dustin, anybody, please answer. But it's still in his backpack, still on the floor, still sitting in the entrance of the Creel house. We go over actually to the Creel right now and we see Dustin and Steve and they're, they're looking for clues, but what clues exactly? Steve's not too sure. Lucas quotes Sherlock Holmes. I, at one point I thought he was quoting like um, uh, Alfred Hitchcock the way he was talking and it didn't, didn't really quite uh, help much with Steve. So they continue to look around. Steve notices a, a heating grate that just looked a little... I don't know, interesting to him, and he, he opens it, and he finds some jars of spiders inside. Ooh, he freaks, really freaks, when he finds the spiders on him. He, like, backs out of the room, jumps up, and he ends up coming across Nancy, who helps him with the cobwebs, getting the cobwebs out of his hair. Uh, she's like, oh, oh, you got a little on you. He's like, don't go in there. And, of course, Robin jokes that um, the only way you know you're going to get them out for sure is when the baby spider eggs hatch, or she makes some kind of thing about his hair. And he's like, yeah, really nice, really, really great. Thank you so much. But we do have a nice moment where Steve talks about how he's glad that Robin and Nancy are friends now. And maybe they could all hang out someday, including Jonathan. Uh, and that would, you know, he said, you know, we're only platonic, right? Robin and I, were like, and Robin's like, platonic with a capital P. He's like, you know, I, I, I would date her, but, you know, he didn't really go into specifics. And that's good, Steve, because it is not your Story to tell, bub. He then tries to quote the same Sherlock Holmes quote that Dustin used. Uh, it, it didn't go very well. It, it didn't work. It didn't make any sense. And Nancy's like, oh, what? But did you notice the way Nancy and Steve were kind of looking at each other? Just these little glances that had my head starting to spin a little bit. I'm like, what is going on here? We then go over to Lucas and Max. Now, they're in another part of the house, and Max has her Kate Bush playing constantly, though right now she has the headphones uh, around her neck, not around her ears, but it's still loud enough for her to hear. When the tape stops, she quickly rewinds it, and we find out they have a 46-minute loop of the song going over and over. And I'm thinking, wait a second, how'd they do that? Aren't those cassette tapes? If you had a 90-minute cassette tape, isn't it 45 minutes per side? So... I don't know how that works. I think what I'm doing is overthinking things. Uh, but it, whatever, that doesn't matter. The point is they have, a, they have it playing on loop on a tape. And she makes a little comment like, you know, what if I get sick of the song or, or, or sick of Kate Bush and she loses her power on me? And Lucas is like, Kate Bush? Never. She's like, so you're, you're a fan? He's like, I am now. She saved your life. Besides, we're hot on this creep's trail. We're going to find Vecna and kill him before he even thinks about messing with you again, all right? In fact, I bet if we hit these suckers in the right combo, we might just open a door to a secret lair. 
Voila. <laughs> You're such a dork. I thought you were like one of the cool kids now. I'm not cool. <laughs> I've really missed that. Missed what? Their laugh. All done. Work your magic, Kate. I promise I'm gonna stop asking this, but you're seeing that, right? Yeah. I agree with Lucas there. I don't think I will ever get sick of that song. I also really like seeing Lucas and Max uh, being friendly, being happy around each other again, smiling, laughing. That is nice to see. And Lucas points it out. He says, it's, it's nice to see your laugh again. Uh, but then the tape stops rewinding. Max puts it. She's like, all right, Kate, back to do your, do your magic. Put the sound back on. But then she hear, she, we see like this flickering. And she looks, and a lamp next to the piano flickers to life. Max gets closer to it. She's about to touch it. Well, first she says, um, you see that too, right? She said the same thing about the clock. And uh, when she goes to touch it, the lamp goes out. But then another lamp outside the room illuminates. When they get near it, it also goes out. But it's replaced by another lamp. And then that light goes out and on and on. And it's almost like... They're being led somewhere. Since we're talking about lights, let's go back into the Nina Project and into Eleven's mind. We see Brenner conducting an experiment where there's this large ring of light bulbs and a boy is able to, with his mind, cycle which bulb is lit. Like he can move which bulb is lit so fast that it looks like the light is spinning in circle. It's like, reminds me of some old bingo game or something you'd see at like a carnival uh, and he does it really, really fast. And when he's done, Brenna's like, very good, number two. And then he, uh, all the other kids, including Eleven, are lined up and watching. After he's done, Brenner asks, while he's holding a little piece of candy like he's some kind of weird grandfather, which brave soul wants to go next? So not many of the kids are raising their hands, and it's kind of creepy. They're like, me, 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 me. Like they say it all at the same time. And Brenner says, how about you, Eleven? And a couple of kids give her this look, especially this girl right next to her, like her head turns like, how dare he choose you? We then see her getting uh, hooked up to this thing. And the orderly kid is kind of set, like hooking things up and gives her a little bit of a pep talk. Um, and I'm like, are we supposed to be trusting this kid here? I don't know. He's He seems trustworthy he also seems quite creepy i'm not sure what to think um but 11 now tries to power up the bulb like the other kid did and it doesn't work and some of the kids are laughing at her and brenner actually uses that to empower he's like they're they're laughing at you show them so then she starts to harness her power and she makes one light bulb turn on and that's all that happens then you see that kid number two Oh, he's a number two, all right. He says, what a waste of time. At this point, Eleven's nose is starting to bleed, and she, she raises her hand to wipe the blood away. But she sees her hand. 
she sees both her hands. They're covered in blood. Now she's alone in this room. She gets up to leave. She sees the carnage in the halls. All the death, all the blood, all the violence that we saw at the start of chapter one. What is happening? She's going into rest. Okay, that's enough. Pull her out. Pull her out! It seems like all that is just, is just too much for Eleven's body to take. And she's going into cardiac arrest. Owens has seen enough. He's demanding to pull her out, get her out of there, as people are like frantically running around there. We then jump over to Yuri's plane, and he's flying along, having a fine old time, when he glances down and he sees a jar of peanut butter rolling up to the front of the plane. What, what is that doing here? He looks back and he sees Joyce, that woman, trying to cut Murray out of his restraints. Yuri breaks it up pretty quick, and he tells her to sit down. She says, or what? I don't know why she said it in a Russian accent. She said, or what? You know, you're not going to shoot us. And he's pulling, he's holding the gun on her. He says, you're right. I can't kill you. But the KGB didn't specify what condition you must arrive in. You are fragile cargo. You can still break. Not if I break you first. Karate Murray. Yes. My fingers are like arrows. My arms like iron, my feet like spears. Resist, and I will end you. But turn this plane around, and I will spare your life. (laughs) You know how many times Murray's probably been laughed at in his life. And here, he just makes this threat to this man, Yuri, who just laughs in his face. And then Murray kicks the gun right out of his hand, and an amazing fight ensues where Yuri's punching, Murray's punching, they're wrestling, Murray's flipping him over. They, they're trying to get to the gun. Uh, at one point, Joyce is trying to reach this gun. Then they, they hit the controllers of the plane. The plane goes into this free, like, dive right down. Uh, Joyce goes flying. The gun goes flying. They're, they're still fighting. And then we see um, Yuri pull back on the controls to bring the, the controls back up. They're still going at it, still going. And then um, Joyce gets the gun. She's like, let him go. She shoots at, at, you know, at them, misses them both, but goes through the window. Uh, and then... He, this time, Yuri pulls back on the stick so that the plane goes straight up into the air and uh, Joyce goes flying. Yuri gets to the gun. He grabs the gun. At this point, then Murray kicks it out of his hand. My fingers are like arrows. My arms like iron. My feet He did it. He defeated Yuri and knocked him out. Oh, wait. He knocked him out. What did you do? What? I said don't knock him out! 
every time I've heard or seen Murray say, what? I, I've laughed every single time. So now they're freaking out because the only person who can fly a plane is knocked out. They jump into the cockpit and they grab the controls and he starts flipping all these buttons. And Joyce is like, I thought you couldn't fly a plane. He says, I can't. Whatever he does, it seems to overblow the motor and it just shuts off. And at that point, they're in a free fall. Free fall that only the the um, the little the wings, whatever the flappers on the wings are the only thing they're going to keep them from falling straight down. They're pulling back, pulling back as much as they possibly can. Just before they hit the treetops, uh, they they kind of level out a bit. They start hitting the trees. They're freaking out, screaming, and then they come to this clearing and just land, crash land in the middle of all this snow, and that is the last time that we see Joyce and Murray and Yuri in this episode crash-landed in the middle of some Russian field. We jump back over to the Creel house with our Creel crew, Robin, Dustin, Lucas, Nancy, and Steve. They're standing below this chandelier that is flickering. It's coming on and they're all looking at it. And Nancy starts talking about the Christmas lights. It's like the Christmas lights. The Christmas lights. When, when we're hosting the Upside Down, the lights came to life. Magnus here, in this house, just on the other side. I think he just left the room. Did he hear us? Can you see us? Headphones. Wait, wait. Everyone, turn off your flashlights. Spread out. We're not going to be able to see if we turn off our flashlights. Jesus Christ. Two things I want to mention there. Number one, Robin is like Christmas lights because she doesn't know uh, everything they've been through. Nancy explains it to her. And Lucas is like, Vecna's here. And... Um, when the lights went out, the first thing that Lucas thought of was Max. He's like, headphones. Like, he is constantly worried about her and thinking about her. And I love that. Uh, but I also love, goddamn Nancy is so smart. The first thing she says is, everyone turn the flashlights off. And Steve's like, huh? What, what are we going to do with the flashlights off? But you realize now they can use the flashlights to track Vecna throughout the house. So wherever the flashlights turn on by themselves, you know there's some sort of presence on the upside down. We've made this connection that lights are or can be triggered or are triggered um, on our plane of existence when something is present in the upside down, when something is nearby. I love that. So Robin finds him first. She's like, I got him over here. They fall. They go to her, but then... The light goes out. Then Steve's like, I, I, got, I got him. And they go to him. And he's like, I think he's moving. And they start walking. And they all start following together upstairs. They go up the stairs. And then his light goes out. But they're like, oh, now what? But Max says, wait. She finds the attic door. She opens it. And there's a light up in the attic. This is the moment in the movie or the story or the real life or the TV show where I say, well, guys, um, look at the time. I have to go. Um, 
my mom uh, is making uh, SpaghettiOs tonight and I need to uh, get home. Anyway, good luck with Vecna. Let me know how it goes. I'll see you. All right. I'll see you tomorrow at school. Uh, but instead, uh, they all go upstairs. Except Dustin's like, wait, wait, what if it's a trap? It doesn't seem to stop any of them, including him, from all going up into the attic. We cut back over to the residence of Reefer Rick. Say that five times fast. Residence of Reefer Rick. Residence of Reefer... Okay, I'm not going to do it. Eddie's still out in the boathouse, but he can see the basketball players, uh, Jason, Patrick, and the third guy. Uh, He can see them still going through the house. One of the guys, the third guy that I can never remember his name, he's like, he's not here. He's like, keep looking. And then he notices outside the boathouse. And you think, "Uh uh-oh, it's only a matter of time now. Dustin, please. Are you there? Never mind. Eddie realizes he's not getting anywhere trying to call Dustin. So he sees the boat and he has an idea. Inside the house, Patrick hears the tolling of the grandfather clock. Jason grabs him and says, come with me. They kick open the boathouse door, and there's no boat there. Out in the lake, we see Eddie paddling, trying to quietly get away, but they see him. Holy shit. Hey, freak! Where do you think you're going? Shit. So I think they were surprised to actually see Eddie. And now Eddie's freaking out because he sees them. He's trying the engine now. He doesn't care about being quiet. He's pulling it. He's pulling it. Nothing happens. And so he's like, screw it. I gotta. I just got to keep rowing. So he's rowing along with this one tiny oar. And Jason and Patrick, I don't know if they're on the Hawk and Swim team, but they should be because they are flying after him. At the same time this is happening, in the Creel house, they're all now surrounding one light bulb in the middle of the room that is blazing. And now all of their flashlights are lit up as well, like super bright. As they're trying to figure out what is happening, the camera pans. It turns upside down. And we see right there on the other side, in that exact position, is Vecna hooked up to all his tentacles in all his glory. Back at the lake, they're still chasing after Eddie, but then Patrick hears the clock, and he freezes. He looks scared. Patrick is pulled below. I think we know what's coming. Patrick is shot out of the water and thrust into the air. We've seen this before, but it's different this time. The sight of that has Eddie fall out of the boat. He's seen this before and he is freaking out. Jason is looking on in complete shock. In the house, as Vecna releases his power, all the flashlights start to burst. At the lake, Patrick's body starts to snap, break, 
the remaining flashlights and the light bulb all burst. At the lake, his eyes are caved in and his broken and dead body falls into the water. We cut back over to the Nina Project for our final scene of this episode. Eleven is being paddled with a defibrillator. Either her heart stopped or it needs to be brought back to a normal rhythm. Either way, yikes. Brenner tries to, you know, just talk, talk around it, make it seem all normal and natural, and he tries to comfort her as she grabs one of the paddles and smacks him right across his big, dumb face. She runs. The guards go after her, and they're like, oh, we got to do this again. They grab her, but this time, as they hold her, she explodes in rage. Light bulbs explode like fireworks. All the guards go flying up against the wall, smashed up against the wall. It seems as if Eleven has her powers back, or at least is starting to get her powers back. Remarkable. There he is, Brenner, wiping a little blood from his lip, looking on in awe of what he just saw. Eleven, she does not want to be around him. Stay away. Even though she told him to stay away, he continues to approach to make his way right up to her. She tries to use her powers on him, but it doesn't work. You didn't think it would be that easy, did you? I don't understand. I do. As he approaches her, the door behind her, the exit, actually opens. As if to say, Eleven. You can go. You can leave. We're not keeping you captive here. But if you want to save your friends, if you want to save the world, you have to trust me. He puts out his hand to her. She turns, looks at the exit, then turns back to him. Papa. Daughter. And puts her hand in his hand. They turn and make their way back to the Nina Project as the door behind her closes and the episode ends. They don't seem too concerned with the uh, guards who are either concussed or dead. Maybe a janitor comes by later and cleans them up. I'm not sure. But I was like, wow, they're just kind of leaving these guys there as they walk off. But it seems like, at this point, at this moment, Eleven has chosen to trust Dr. Brenner and to continue with the treatment to bring back her powers. What an amazing episode we have here. Whew. Why don't we talk about what we learned here? I wrote down a few things. Uh, the big thing now is that the gang now knows that the Creel house is very important with Vecna, and there's definitely some sort of connection there. So they know that for, for our Hawkins crew. 
We also learn that I guess Mike knows exactly where Susie lives. Uh, then again, I realize, you know, they could use the white pages to find out pretty easily where, where Susie lives, as long as they know her full name. Uh, now we see that Jason uh, has seen how Patrick dies. So he knows at least something crazy is going on here uh, because Jason has now witnessed some cuckoo banana stuff. We learn that the crack in the ceiling of the Munson trailer is not good. It's not good. In fact, get out of here because uh, we need to, you know, have our people look at this. We need to corner this off. This is not a good thing. Not exactly sure where that's going to lead, but we'll find out. Wink, wink. We learn that Murray really does know karate, but he cannot land a damn plane. We also learn that Hopper used to think he's cursed, but now he thinks he is the curse. We find out that, you know, he and his um, his buddy there, Enzo, are together, and they hear rumors of a monster, uh, and they're figuring that now that they try to escape, that they're next to deal with um, said monster behind those steel doors. And I think, this is my prediction, I think we learn that Vecna is getting stronger. Now, remember, when he killed Chrissy, he was right there in the Upside Down. He brought her there and was next to her. When he killed Fred, same thing. They were in that trance where their eyes were fluttering back and forth. With Max, she was her eyes were... She was in a trance as well by the gravestone. Uh, luckily, she got away. But this was something different. With Patrick... Uh, he was able to do it. He was at the house and Patrick was not in the upside down. He was able to just kind of use his mojo to um, kill Patrick much quicker without putting him in, in any kind of trance. Now, maybe it's because he was going to get in that trance and then Jason interrupted him. So he was kind of close to being in this trance, but there was no Vecna going up to him and talking to him and hello, Patrick. And I'm going to, I also wonder what, um, what tragedy or what sadness does Patrick have or did Patrick have uh, that led to this? You know, I don't, we, I don't know if we find that out. Interesting. Um, and I think that's pretty much everything we learned in this episode, but I wanted to give a shout out to someone who sent me an email recently uh, that she noticed something, an email from Danica Talbot, she noticed uh, the scars on Eleven's legs, like early on in the roller rink episode, which was the second episode, third episode. I don't remember exactly. I think it was, it's been a while since I watched it and rewatched it and rewatched it. Uh, but she sent a few photos of Eleven's leg. And I remember seeing the scar in the episode, but I never made the connection that, hey, isn't that scar related to her getting her bite? back in Stranger Things 3. And it's nothing, it's no major thing. You actually see the scar in this episode when she's um, up on the chair looking into the camera. It's not some major like, oh, look at that. Uh, it's just a cool little detail that I love that they didn't forget about because God, I love this show. Uh, so really cool to um, figure that out. Um, I, I noticed the scar and I never thought anything about it. So uh, thank you, Danica, for sending that. That was uh, awesome. If you have any thoughts, you can easily email us as well. StrangerDanger at FensNotExperts.com. Uh, 
Or, of course, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Geek Mentality. The show is on Twitter at Stranger D Pod. And, of course, everything we do, every podcast I do, every episode of Stranger Danger, from the full episodes to the bonus episodes to the rewatch episodes to the book club, can be found at fansnotexperts.com slash strangerdanger or at strangerdangerpodcast.com. So I think that's it. I think we're getting closer. We're getting closer to catching up. I, I, I really hope that we can get uh, all seven episodes up before July 1st, because I know we'll be focusing on something else once that day comes. <laughs> getting ready for fireworks, right? Yeah, right. I think there's some different fireworks that we're all looking forward to. But we still have time. So until then, my friends, thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for following. Stay stranger, my friends. And remember, don't knock out the pilot if you don't know how to fly a plane. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success.